It's good to be here. I bring you greetings from not only Harvest USA, where I serve as the director of the Greater Pittsburgh Region Office, uh, but also greetings from uh, the Presbytery to the south of you. I guess your daughter Presbytery is the proper thing to say. Uh, Pittsburgh Presbytery, and from uh, First Reformed Presbyterian Church in Penn Hills. Um, in spite of what it says in the bulletin, I don't live in the South Hills, I live in Penn Hills, and that is the church uh, through which my ordination uh, comes, First Reformed. So greetings from them. Um, some of you know, some of you don't know what Harvest USA is about. You can hear more about that in the, uh, worship, in the uh, Sunday School Hour. Um, But let me just introduce by saying that Harvest USA seeks to help individuals who are struggling with various patterns of sexual sins and to equip churches to do the same. And increasingly, that's the, the mission and the vision that we have is to equip churches to do that. So I was struck as I was thinking about that even in preparation for uh, reading our scripture, when we did our unison prayer of confession, forgive, we said, forgive what our lips tremble to name. Those are the kinds of things that we deal with at Harvest USA. Set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open to us a future in which we can be changed. This highlights the fact that in the gospel and in the church, sin And sinners have a remedy. Sin and sinners have a remedy. But what if the sinners are in the church, but their sin is hidden and never comes to light, is never talked about, is never spoken, so that the sin and the remedy, the sin and the gospel are in close proximity, but never come together. We like to say, we don't like to say, we often say at Harvest USA, those of us who work directly with individuals, that conservatively estimated, on average, when someone comes into one of our offices and speaks to us and painfully confesses to a pornography habit or to homosexuality or to an affair, it's been 20 years that they've been struggling with that, with no one knowing, not telling a soul. I've spoken to college-age men who have been struggling since their single-digit ages with pornography. And I've spoken to 70-year-olds who have been struggling for 50 or 60 years, and I'm the first person that they've ever confessed to. That is, to a great extent, what this passage is about this morning. So pray with me again before we read the scripture. Lord, help us to hear you speak. Help us to hear this not as the word of man, but as the word of God, which it truly is. Give us hope and a future. In Jesus' name, amen. Hopefully your Bibles are open. I don't know, do the words go up there as well? No? Okay. If your Bibles are open to John chapter 4, I will be reading the first 30 verses. The Pharisees heard 
that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. As we move through this passage this morning, we will, we will follow the story. It's a very familiar story. You've heard it many, many times. Um, hopefully we can, we can see something new in this story this morning. As I move through the story, I will uh, break the story into three 
segments. And I will call the first segment our barrier-breaking God. The second segment will be the biggest barrier. And then the last segment will be the breakthrough. So all, all focusing on the idea of, of barriers. So first of all, our barrier-breaking God. Jesus breaks through impossible barriers to meet us. We note some barriers in the text. First of all, Jesus walking through Samaria. Now, you probably know, if you've been in church very often, that Samaritans and Jews had very strained relations. There were, they were a, an ethnically mixed breed, which was very important in that day. They were also a religiously mixed breed. They had some semblance of proper Israelite religion, but they had intermixed it with a whole bunch of, of um, religious ideas from the area. And so Jews would not generally go through Samaria. To get to where Jesus was going, they would generally go around. But the text says Jesus had to go through Samaria. He didn't physically have to go through Samaria, but he had to go through Samaria. Why is that? Because that's what Jesus does. Jesus breaks through barriers. Also, not just being in Samaria, but talking to a woman was a barrier. And talking to a Samaritan woman was a barrier. And asking her for a drink. Many think this phrase, for Jews have no association with Samaritans, literally means Jews do not drink from the same cups that Samaritans use. And so you see it in the, the surprise that this woman has at, the, at what it, Jesus is doing here. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? This is very strange. We know something of barriers, do we not? Think about some of the barriers we deal with. Racial barriers. Black and white in America. It's a complicated and difficult barrier. I live in Penn Hills, a town that was that has long been known for a place, at least outwardly, is known for a place where there's a wonderful admixture of black and white living in harmony. And yet, you can feel the tension very often on both sides of that divide. For many Americans, your living room is a barrier. The front door of your house is a barrier. How hospitable are we? How easy is it to have someone into your home? Several years ago, uh, my wife and I had a new person in the church that we were attending. We had them over to our house, and we got to know them, and we didn't think much of that. And then a few weeks later, they invited us over, and they, they seemed to be very nervous. And at some point, we tried to study them, say, you don't have to be so concerned to entertain us and to make everything right. It's okay. And the wife was very honest and said to us, I'm sorry. I just have to let you know that you are the first people ever in our married life that we have invited into this house, and it scares us to death. I love the honesty, but does that describe you? Is your front door a barrier? What about age in your church? Age in small groups? 
Is it difficult for young to identify with old or old to identify with young? What if that has to do with worship music? Now, I said it. I won't go any further. (laughs) What about the entry doors of your church? Are those barriers, are there barriers that hopefully keep ministry and church-related stuff inside? This is where we do the religious stuff. Are they barriers that keep those outside from coming in? We need to think about those things. Those barriers, all of those, are very real. And yet there's hope in the gospel that those barriers can all be broken down. God says in Ephesians 2.14 that he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility in Christ. In Christ, we read in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. These references are references to the power of the gospel to break through all of those barriers. And yet, this passage is not, first of all, about you and what you do and how you break through barriers or how you ought to. That's not what it is first about. It's first about God and his breaking barriers to come to us. Consider God, the barrier breaker. Consider, first of all, the barrier between creator and creature. You philosophically minded people, have you ever thought about that? Tried to understand it? Have you been filled with awe as you consider what the psalmist does in Psalm 8? When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is man? What are we that you are mindful of us? That God condescends to speak to us is amazing. That is a one-way possibility that God would reveal himself to us. But he not only speaks, he binds himself to us. That's what covenant means. He makes promises to us. And then, to fulfill those covenant promises, he enters our world. The creator takes on created flesh as his own. He dresses himself with his creation. And he is still in our flesh. Do you know that? Christ is still and will always be in our flesh. That barrier has been broken for all eternity. And he did that not only in becoming flesh, but in all that he did in his flesh to remove the barrier of sin and guilt. This is our God, breaking through every barrier. Now, from one perspective, I want to talk now about the biggest barrier. The biggest barrier, from one perspective, from this passage's perspective, is our shame. Because it cost the most to come through. So we see this in her In this story, first of all, we note, many have noted that she came alone to the well, and she came at the sixth hour, which was the heat of the day, not the time to come and get water. 
She's not coming when the rest of the women come to get water. She's not part of the ladies' water well society of gossip because they're gossiping and talking about her. She doesn't want to be there. She's ashamed. You see, people who struggle with shame isolate themselves. Shame is all about people are looking at me. People see me. People might know me. I don't want that. So shame keeps people distant. It isolates by hiding. The world is full of eyes. You need to picture what I'm sure you've seen on a news clip of an accused or alleged criminal being led from the car to the courtroom with a whole host, a crowd of cylindrical foam microphones pointing from above on poles down in and cameras all over the place. And he runs from the car to the courthouse with his face covered. That is shame. Remember the fig leaves. Clothing is a metaphor for our shame. We all have it. Clothing is a metaphor also for all the other ways that we hide. What about a sense of humor? The proverbial class clown. Is not that person keeping people at a distance so that he or she cannot be truly known? Meanness. That person in your office who is just a prickly pear, nobody's close to that person. And that is not a mistake. You can hide behind job and career identity because that is something respectable. That is something honorable that people look up to. So that becomes your whole life. Or a controlling personality. If you can make everyone around you do exactly what you want, then you have control of what they see and what they know. Or you could hide behind a religious identity, like this woman. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? In other words, she's putting him on notice. You are at Jacob's well. This is no small place. Jacob, you know, the one who is named Israel, you from Judah. This is his well. He dug it. He gave it to us. And he drank here and his sons and his cattle. When you drink this water, you could be kissing Jacob's camels. This is an important place. Religion provides for us respectability, anonymity, something to say, something to do, the words are given to us. We sing what's up there or in here. We say or we read what's told to say or read. And when we're in other contexts, we make small talk. Nobody need know you in order for you to be a good religious person. And so she too here hides behind religion. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? But also, and this is where our sin becomes insane, we hide behind the very things that cause us 
shame. I want you to look carefully at how this discussion, how this conversation develops. Jesus talks about her having the possibility of living of, of water. I will give you living water. She says, how can you do that? Now, living water is just running water in that language. How can you find running water? This well is deep. I don't understand this. And then he says something strange about, I can give you water that will never end. And if you knew the gift of God, you would ask for that. And then she says, sir, give me some of this water that I will never have to come back here and draw again. Now let's look at that conversation and ask what's going on. Now I want to suggest to you that it's not all innocent. How likely is it that she is thinking, oh, he has some special magical water. He just said he did, so I'd like to have that because I'd like to never have to drink again. That's not very likely. What's much more likely, what is much closer to her experience as she is with a single man in an awkward place, breaking barriers that socially should not be broken, saying awkward things about being the gift of God and offering water that will never end, she's thinking, okay, I know how this game is played. This guy's hitting on me. I'll play with this. I'll see how long it goes. Okay, I'm buying what you're selling. Give me some of that water. Not this water. Now, I want to give a caution here before I move to my next point. Our shame is not one-dimensional and simple. When you think of this woman, don't think of her as necessarily being all full of guilt and solely responsible for what she's doing here. She is, in one respect, continuing her pattern. She is on man six right now, and Jesus is fixing to be man number seven. Interesting imagery in that in and of itself. But in her society, she would not have been the most powerful. Women would not have been the most powerful in relationships in terms of starting them and ending them. She is likely just as much a victim as she is a sinner. But our shame, in our experience, you know this, our shame doesn't always or doesn't cleanly differentiate between what was done to us and what we've done. And in fact, our guilt and our victimhood is often all mixed up. But just don't think too one-dimensionally about her shame. But do note the insanity that she again begins hiding in the very thing that she is ashamed of. And then we get to the breakthrough. Jesus now invades her shame. He says to her, go home and bring your husband. Now she says at this point, and if you imagine that she is beginning to flirt, she says, I have no husband. This is the equivalent of, I can't get my ring off. If there's no ring here, showing him, no ring on my finger, 
I'm available. I don't have a husband. She's technically speaking the truth, as Jesus says. And Jesus says at this point, lowering the boom, turning on the light, you are right. For you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. Now, this could be the one that you have is not your husband, meaning you're not married to this man that you have right now. Or it could mean the one that you have is not your husband, which is even worse. Either way, it's not good. Boom. This is that sudden exposure that lays us down flat. This is, you forgot to erase the history and she found it and is confronting you. This is you come into work and your desk is cleared off and there's no computer there and there's a sticky note from the boss saying, come talk to me. This is you're walking down the hall at work and you hear laughter and you hear around the corner and you perceive that they're actually talking about you and they know. We hate this. We avoid this at all cost. Exposure. And yet, I see this at Harvest USA, and we see it here in this passage, exposure itself is not enough. It's not enough. She quickly hides again. And this time, she hides not just in religion, but in religious controversy. She immediately jumps to, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that Jerusalem is the place we ought to worship. Now, she picked the biggest issue she could possibly have picked. This is, this is if, you're watching, if you're watching a show about a secret agent who goes in and hides under a, a false identity, this agent has a backup plan. And if his identity is, is blown, he can create an explosion or a diversion or something to get out of there. This is what she's doing. Religious controversy as an emergency diversion. And at this point, Jesus gives this famous speech, some of which was in the... Uh, beginning of this worship service, up on the wall there. Believe me, woman, a, man, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. What I want to ask you to see in this passage is not all of the theology. I'm sure books have been written about the theological points you can draw from what Jesus said here. I want you to hear in the context of this conversation what this little speech is relationally between Jesus and this woman. Is this just a teachable moment? Oh, I'm so glad that you brought up this controversy so that I have this opportunity to give a teaching full of theology that people can write books about for the next 2,000 years. Yes, partially that. But in the moment, 
This is, yes, I do know you. Yes, I have just exposed your deepest, darkest secret. Now let me give you directions to my home. My father and I want you to be part of our family. This is, yes, I know you. I know what you've done. And I love you. This is, I know the worst about you. And you are welcome. In fact, you are desired by my father to be a true worshiper. Did you know, do you know, I know theologically you would say it, but do you know that Jesus knows the worst of you? He knows. He could name, like he did with her, he could name a detail that would lay you low. He could name the URL, www. He knows which one you looked at last. He doesn't have to check your history. He knows her name. He knows his name. He knows the place. He knows what happened. He knows it right now. And he is saying to you what he said to her. I know. And I love you. I want you to be a true worshiper. He is so excited about this. He is so pleased to offer her a path to true worship that later, just beyond this passage, when his disciples come back with the food that he's been waiting for, he says to them, I'm not hungry. I have food you don't even know anything about. He's satisfied because he has been able to offer life and true worship to a sinner that he knows. This is astounding. This is life-changing. Now, this is in some ways almost too good to be true, is it not? When she says near the end of our passage, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Let me describe to you what she's doing right there. The Samaritans had as their Bible not everything that the Jews had. They only had as their Bible the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. The first five books only, and then they stopped. And so they didn't have all of the messianic prophecies that we know. They didn't have Isaiah 53. They didn't recognize that. They didn't have Psalm 2. They didn't have Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my feet until I make my enemies your footstool, or your enemies your footstool. She didn't have any of that. She had one passage, which was the main passage of the Samaritans promising the Messiah. And it says in Deuteronomy 18.18, God speaking to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. She's saying, I know that the Christ is coming, and he will explain everything to us. He will teach us. In other words, she's saying, what you just said to me, I cannot believe. 
unless it comes with the authority of God himself. That's just too much for you to expose me and then invite me to worship. And Jesus' answer to her is just as gracious and loving and astounding as the previous speech. He says, I who am speaking to you am he. And in the Greek, you have the phrase, I am, in there. A clear echo of the name of God himself. When he uses those two words in the Greek, again, a few chapters later, in the presence of the Jewish leaders, they pick up stones to kill him because they understand what he's saying. He's saying to her, yes, I speak to you with the authority of God. Yes, you can trust this grace. Not only because I speak with the authority of God, but I am God. And not only is he God, and he has the right and the authority to say these things because he is God, but he has the right and the authority because of who he is and because of what he's done. He came with no shame and no guilt, and he emptied himself, he opened himself, exposed himself to condemnation, to the eyes of the world. He went to the cross without clothing, the covering on, naked, with the eyes of the condemning eyes of the world on him, with the condemning eyes of the Father on him, as he bore our shame. And even the position on the cross itself, with arms outstretched, is totally exposed and open, not hiding like we want to. It was our shame that he took to the cross. And he was crucified for it. And then God raised him from the dead and vindicated him such that when you are united to him by faith, all of that is yours. Your shame is given to him and ended. And you get his righteousness and his resurrection life, which are inseparable. She came to Jacob's well looking for water, and she found the fountain of Israel. She found Jacob's well with a capital W, and she didn't need her water jar anymore. So she dropped it, John says. She left it there. She was filled. Are you thirsty? Are you buried by long-standing shame? And are you thirsty to know that freedom to be satisfied by the living water of Jesus Christ. He's taken care of your shame. You don't need to hide behind it anymore. Let's pray. Father, how I thank you, how we thank you for this message of grace. We are ashamed And yet, in Christ, we are free from that shame. For you have made us a new creation. And you are changing us to look like Jesus in all his glory. We give thanks and praise for your grace.
great love for us. Amen.